Welcome to the Tech Meme Ride Home for Monday, June 14th, 2021. I'm Brian McCullough. Today, could we get an extreme sports Apple Watch soon? Google makes workspace and chat available to all. Bitcoin's first major overhaul in four years is a go. TikTok has quickly become an advertising monster. And I try to explain to you why everyone is suddenly so hype on Miami as a tech hub. Here's what you missed today in the world of tech. It's a Mark Gurman and Debbie Wu Apple Scoop Monday. Their sources say Apple is planning to launch a faster watch with improved connectivity and screen later this year, which, okay, that's probably to be expected. They're always improving things like connectivity and screens. But also, what if we got new model types, say an entry-level and extreme sports model beginning next year? Quoting Bloomberg. The Cupertino, California-based tech giant is planning to refresh the line this year with a model likely dubbed the Apple Watch Series 7 by adding a faster processor, improved wireless connectivity, and an updated screen, according to people with knowledge of the plans. Next year, the company plans to update the main Apple Watch alongside a successor for the lower-end Apple Watch SE and a new version targeting extreme sports athletes. Apple had previously aimed to put a body temperature sensor in this year's model, but that is now more likely to be included in the 2022 update. The blood sugar sensor, which would help diabetics monitor their glucose levels, is unlikely to be ready for commercial launch for several more years. For this year's model, Apple has tested thinner display borders and a new lamination technique that brings the display closer to the front cover. The new watch is likely to be slightly thicker overall, but not in a way that's noticeable to the user. The model will include updated ultra-wideband functionality, the same underlying technology in the Apple AirTag item finder. At its developer conference in early June, Apple previewed the upcoming watchOS 8 software update that will let the device unlock door and hotel rooms. The extreme sports model, described by some inside Apple as either an explorer or adventure edition, was in development for release as early as this year, but is now more likely to launch in 2022. That new model would help Apple compete with rugged offerings from players like Garmin and Casio Computer, end quote. Google has made workspace and chat available to all users and has added client-side encryption for data generated on workspaces. Quoting The Verge, Google says that there are over 3 billion users of its workspace apps, though it's probably a safe bet that Gmail accounts for a healthy chunk of that user base. A lot of people will soon have the option to switch over to Google's more modern system for Gmail docs and chat. All of them can be integrated in a single tab more easily, for example, with chats sliding over to the left to reveal a shared spreadsheet. It's also related to the company's new Smart Canvas push, which is also designed to interlink its various apps via smart chips. To get started, Google is now officially offering the setting to turn on Google Chat to all users. It's a new setting within Gmail. With the switch, Google Chat messaging should be an option for all now, which can include direct messages and chat rooms. But Google is also introducing a new terminology to go along with the announcement. It is announcing the, quote, evolution of rooms in Google Chat to spaces, end quote. A space is essentially the same thing as a chat room. But Google wants to separate them out into their own top-level form of communication next to Gmail chat and Meet. Google is layering on a few new features like improved message threading, more emoji reactions, user roles, moderation tools, and discoverable spaces. In that sense, it seems that spaces 
wants to serve both as a Slack competitor and as a competitor for public Discord groups and, well, maybe as an optional replacement for email groups. It's a little confusing, but that's par for the course for Google's messaging strategy. And those aren't the only announcements getting bundled into today's Workspace news. The company is launching a new tier called Google Workspace Individual at $9.99 per month, which gives users more Workspace tools without requiring them to set up their own domain or custom email address. Finally, Google is adding enterprise options that are going to be necessary if it really wants to have a shot at going after larger companies. Corporations will be able to use their own client-side encryption for data, add more trust roles for various drive files to simplify access and permissions, and label files based on their sensitivity, end quote. Also opening up to more folks, Amazon's game streaming service Luna will be made available to all Prime members starting on Prime Day, which is actually two days this year, June 21 and 22. U.S. Prime members can start a seven-day trial of Luna today. Quoting The Verge again, Luna is available on Windows PC, Mac, Fire TV, and via the web on iPhone, iPad, and select Android phones. Regular pricing is $5.99 a month for access to games including Control, Grid, and Metro Exodus. Or once you've got a Luna account, you can pay $14.99 a month for the Ubisoft Plus beta channel. This gets you access to a big range of Ubisoft games, including the latest titles from the Assassin's Creed, Far Cry, and Watch Dogs franchises. According to 9to5Google, Amazon is also discounting its dedicated Luna controller by 30% from June 14th to June 22nd, and knocking $40 off a bundle package, including the Luna controller and Fire TV Stick 4K. If you're a Prime member and have been curious to see how Luna stacks up against Microsoft's xCloud or Google Stadia, this is a good opportunity to check it out. Modify your expectations, though. In our early review of Luna in October last year, we found that the service was very hit and miss. Games load fast, but the library of available titles is small, and internet speeds of at least 25 Mbps are necessary for smooth play." End quote. For all the talk lately of Ethereum updating for various efficiency gains and the controversy around Bitcoin's energy footprint, it's worth remembering that Bitcoin is still a live project. In other words, it can still evolve. For example, this weekend, Taproot, a significant Bitcoin upgrade promising better transaction privacy and smart contracts, got approved by miners globally, meaning Taproot is due to take effect in November. This is Bitcoin's first sort of makeover in four years, quoting CNBC. The upgrade is called Taproot, and it's due to take effect in November. When it does, it will mean greater transaction privacy and efficiency, and crucially, it will unlock the potential for smart contracts, a key feature of its blockchain technology which eliminates middlemen from even the most complex transactions. Taproot matters because it opens a breadth of opportunity for entrepreneurs interested in expanding Bitcoin's utility, said Elise Killen, co-founder and managing partner of Bitcoin-focused venture firm Stillmark. 
Unlike Bitcoin's 2017 upgrade, referred to as the last civil war because of the contentious ideological divide separating adherents, Taproot has near-universal support in part because these changes are fairly incremental improvements to the code. Bitcoin's makeover has to do with digital signatures, which you can think of as the fingerprint an individual leaves on every transaction they make. Right now, the cryptocurrency uses something called the elliptic curve digital signature algorithm, which is created from the private key which controls a Bitcoin wallet and ensures that Bitcoin can only be spent by the rightful owner. Taproot will switch over to something known as Schnorr signatures, which essentially makes multi-signature transactions unreadable, according to Alejandro de la Torre, vice president at Hong Kong headquartered major mining pool Poolin. Currently, Smart contracts can be created both on Bitcoin's core protocol layer and on the Lightning Network, a payments platform built on Bitcoin, which enables instant transactions. Smart contracts executed on the Lightning Network typically lead to faster and less costly transactions. Quote, Lightning transactions can be fractions of a penny, while a Bitcoin transaction at the core protocol layer can be much more expensive than that, explained Killeen. Developers have already begun to build on Lightning in anticipation of the upgrade, which will allow for highly specific contracts. The most important thing for Taproot is smart contracts said Fred Thiel, CEO of cryptocurrency mining specialist Marathon Digital Holdings. It's already the primary driver of innovation on the Ethereum network. Smart contracts essentially give you the opportunity to really build applications and businesses on the blockchain, end quote. When you go through airport security, there's one line where the TSA agent checks your ID and another line where a machine scans your bag. The same thing happens in enterprise security, but instead of passengers and luggage, it's end users and their devices. These days, most companies are pretty good at the first part of the equation where they check user identity. But user devices can roll right through authentication without getting inspected at all. In fact, 47% of companies allow unmanaged, untrusted devices to access their data. That means an employee can log in from a laptop that has its firewall turned off and hasn't been updated in six months. Or worse, that laptop might belong to a bad actor using employee credentials. Collide finally solves the device trust problem. Collide ensures that no device can log into your Okta-protected apps unless it passes your security checks. Plus, you can use Collide on devices without MDM, like your Linux fleet, contractor devices, and every BYOD phone and laptop in your company. Visit collide.com slash ride to watch a demo and see how it all works. That's K-O-L-I-D-E dot com slash ride, collide.com slash ride. Let's be real for a minute. Most guys would wear a t-shirt every day of their lives if they could. The problem is that most t-shirts are not acceptable to wear at work or out on a hot date night. But today's sponsor, Cuts, has finally changed that. Cuts t-shirts are such high-quality, wrinkle-free, and so buttery soft that you can look like you're dressing up even when you're dressing down. Yeah, you heard that. Wrinkle-free. You never have to substitute comfort for fashion ever again. If you see me in a t-shirt, it's likely one from Cuts. I'm also a huge fan of their AO5 pocket pants, the right sort of step up from jeans without going all the way into dress pants, like literally my ideal Venn diagram of professional looking but comfortable feeling. When you touch something from Cuts, you can immediately 
immediately feel the quality. Their proprietary fabric blends are ridiculously soft and breathable, they don't wrinkle, and they look way more expensive than they actually are. For a limited time, our listeners get 20% off your entire order when you use code RIDE at checkout. That's 20% off your order at CutsClothing.com with promo code RIDE. Please support our show and tell them we sent you. Experience the perfect blend of style and comfort with Cuts Clothing. CutsClothing.com, promo code RIDE for 20% off. I thought this was worth taking note of. ByteDance, the parent company of TikTok, is now the fourth biggest advertising company on the planet. Google comes in at number one with $132 billion in annual revenue, followed by Facebook at $87 billion, Alibaba at $29 billion, then ByteDance slots in now at number four with $28 billion, followed by Amazon at $20 billion. TikTok is so popular right now that it's been able to command as much as $2 million a day for certain all-day ad slots, quoting Bloomberg. The short-form video app is asking for more than $1.4 million for a takeover of its homepage in the U.S. during the third quarter, according to a document obtained by Bloomberg News. That figure will jump to more than $1.8 million in the fourth quarter and more than $2 million on a holiday. These prices are a significant increase over what TikTok was charging just a year ago, according to people familiar with the terms who declined to be identified because the document isn't public. The total price has gone up in large part because of the app's growing customer base. The app had more than 100 million monthly active users in the U.S. as of last August, up from 11 million early in 2018. TikTok estimated that anyone who purchased this advertising unit could generate 109 million impressions. TikTok isn't yet making a lot of money from that user base and is still building its advertising team. Advertisers haven't dedicated large chunks of their video budgets to TikTok in the way they do for YouTube yet, but it's only a matter of time said Brian Weiser, global president of business intelligence at the advertising giant Group M. Facebook, Instagram, Snap, Pinterest, and YouTube have all gone through the same cycle of user growth followed by advertising sales. The rate card offered a glimpse at where TikTok thinks advertisers stand to benefit the most. The most valuable ad space is what's called Top View, which is the first thing users see when they open the app. That will cost as much as $1.5 million on a national holiday in the third quarter and more than $2 million in the fourth quarter. The cost of the first advertisement spot in a user's feed costs less than half as much because the number of people who see it falls below $50 million, end quote. Even that $28 billion revenue number for this year is rapidly getting outdated as ByteDance's global ad sales are estimated to probably reach nearly $40 billion this year. Finally today, LinkedIn data shows that Austin, Texas is the top beneficiary of tech-related migration in the past 12 months, followed by Nashville, Tennessee. Miami, Florida was number 11 by net migration rate. More on that in a second, quoting Bloomberg. The Texas capital captured a net inflow of 217 software and information technology company workers per 10,000 existing workers, according to data from May 2020 to April 2021, provided by LinkedIn. That's the best net migration rate among 35 metropolitan areas with gross tech migration of at least 2,000 LinkedIn users in the past 12 months. Jobs are also flowing to such places as Jacksonville, Florida, and Denver, Colorado. 
Lately, another Florida market, the Miami area, which is neither cheap nor second tier, tends to grab most of the attention. It has been at the center of a buzzy social media campaign to lure tech workers there. Even though Mayor Francis Suarez's move to Miami campaign on social media didn't begin in earnest until early December, the city was number 11 by net migration rate, end quote. So Jacksonville, Florida, and Tampa Bay, the Tampa Bay area in Florida, have, according to this data, been more of tech boomtowns so far this year than Miami, which is actually only barely ahead of Orlando, Florida. This would be surprising to anyone who's been on social media recently, seen all the Twitter and social media nonstop posts from venture capitalists and investors about how Miami is now this nirvana par excellence for tech startups. So what gives? Why has Miami gotten all the love when it's actually Austin or even Nashville that is, in reality, where a lot of the tech energy is flowing right now? Well, keep in mind a key concept called deal flow. Say a bunch of venture capitalists have given up on Silicon Valley for various reasons and have decided collectively that Miami is where they want to decamp to because of, you know, no income tax or maybe somewhat cheaper cost of living because of the weather even. Pick your reasons. And by the way, it does seem to be that that is what has happened. Some of the very loudest investor voices in the industry have been making the case for Miami vociferously over the last few months, as we've seen. But even if the investors all agree on Miami as the new Silicon Valley, they have a problem. They need the entrepreneurs and startups to join them in Miami as well. If they all just go to Miami and there's no startups there, then what's the point? Thus, all the tweets about the weather and the restaurants and the amazing deals being cut down there. If the investors all go to Miami, but the entrepreneurs don't follow, then, well, it's not actually going to be the new Silicon Valley at all. That's why you're seeing all these tweets. It's similar to why VCs are so vocal just in general these days. It's why they all have podcasts now and YouTube channels and post endless tweet threads giving entrepreneurs advice on how to succeed. It's all about deal flow. Let's say you launch a venture fund tomorrow. Good for you. But if a tree falls in the woods, does anyone know what happens? And even if startups do know your new venture fund exists, they have to want you on their cap table. That's the thing that people forget. They think VCs are this priesthood of geniuses that if you're ever so lucky, they'll deign to invest in your company. But that's not how it feels from the VC side of the equation. VC is a hugely competitive cutthroat business of hits, right? Hits with a ton of failure. If you can't get in on the best, hottest deals, you can invest all you want in all of those remaining 90% of startups that will fail, and your fund won't get anywhere. People forget that the VCs actually need the entrepreneurs more than the other way around. Thus, all the tweeting and the long essays and the pontificating. VCs need entrepreneurs to think they're cool. VCs need entrepreneurs to want them to invest in their startups. It didn't actually used to be this way. VC was a small, clubby industry of a few firms that didn't really do a lot to promote themselves, kind of because they didn't have to. But now... For all the ways there seem to be a million startups everywhere you look, there's actually way more money than ever chasing too few good deals. Remember, the good deals are the key. And it all started with investors like Paul Graham and Fred Wilson, who ate their own dog food and started blogging back in the early 2000s. They had such success that now everybody does it. Fast forward to today, and A16Z has their own media division, and YouTube stars and NBA players are the hottest angel investors. Why? 
Again, deal flow. People know who you are. Getting entrepreneurs to think you're cool. Getting entrepreneurs to think having you on their cap table is a virtuous signal that maybe suggests a golden ticket toward eventual success. I'm bringing this all up just to say this. I certainly hope Miami and Tampa and Charlotte and Denver all become new tech hubs, new Silicon Valleys. You know that I'm a Florida native, so I'm not anti-Miami. I'm not even anti-the Miami cheerleader crowd. Some of them are my friends. But I'm bringing this up to say to entrepreneurs, the odds of your startup succeeding are based on a million factors, from who you hire to simple luck and timing, and also geographic location. So yeah, maybe being in on the ground floor of a new startup scene in a city like Miami will end up giving you a leg up that you will look back on as being hugely beneficial. But before you throw your eggs into one geographic basket, you should be aware of at least some of the motivations behind those folks that are so loudly telling you to start your company there. They need you in Miami more than you need to be in Miami. Keep that in mind is telling you to make a decision like that with your eyes open. Man, nothing like the beginning of a football tournament. I love the summer for this reason. The group stages, when you have three games a day for like two weeks. I'm having memories of 96, 98, 2002, 2012, some of my favorite tournaments as I keep the TV on in the background as I work today. I love the Euros maybe even more than the World Cup. Sorry, Scotland supporters, you battled valiantly, but just needed a bit more end product, as they say. And man, that Patrick Schick goal. Speaking of Scotland, by the way, I did end up sampling Iron Brew this weekend, thanks to all those Scottish listeners who reached out to fill me in on Iron Brew. My report on the taste is, I'd say it's like if cream soda and, I don't know, orange drink, Sunkist or Orangina or something had a baby. It was all right. I can imagine it's a hell of a mixer with vodka or gin for sure. Anyway, I would drink again, I guess. Sipped some watching Scotland play this morning. Talk to you tomorrow.